Welcome back to Art History Happy Hour. My name is Sarah Schaefer. And I'm Tina Rivers-Ryan. Today we are really excited to be back with you to talk about NFTs again. So this is the second part of a two-part conversation. And in the first conversation, I mentioned that I you know, could hardly believe that NFTs were still relevant and that I wasn't sure that they would you know, continue to be. Um, and yet here we are. <laughs> More weeks have passed and NFTs are still making headlines. We are still seeing some records being broken. Recently, there was a new record for um, the most expensive meme ever tokenized, raised $4 million. We don't know what will happen next with the market, but in the meantime, Sarah and I thought that we could do what we do best, which is to talk a little bit about art history and to bring an art historical lens to bear on the phenomenon of NFTs. So if you listen to our last episode, we really um, spent that whole episode talking about what an NFT is and the sort of technological and social conditions that allowed for NFTs to emerge. Um, I talked a little bit about the market, and Sarah and I had uh, a conversation about the concept of authenticity. Sarah brought in the history of prints, which is something that she is very much an expert on, to talk about this question of you know the authentic original. And I pointed out that you know with with NFTs, what we're really seeing is a shift from thinking about the authenticity of the work itself to the authenticity of the transaction. So that was our conversation last time, and this time we wanted to actually talk about art a little bit more, because that was more about um, the NFT as a as a technology, as a transactional tool, about the market, about all this stuff that's going on. So we really wanted to just uh, take a moment to talk about how we might understand the NFT in the history of modern and contemporary art. So um, one of the things that people who support NFTs love to do is to claim that the NFT is a sort of next generation evolution of conceptual art. And just as conceptual art proved that a work of art could be a concept, that the work of art Uh, was not necessarily a physical object, but rather was the idea that was embedded into the object that, you know, NFTs are, you know, proof of of the idea of digital art, that digital art is something that is immaterial, that doesn't have a physical existence, and that it is valid. So in other words, um, the digital artists who are minting their works with NFTs, um, as well as the um, collectors who are buying them, basically say, well, you think that digital art is not legitimate. You think that digital art is not art. But in fact, it is because it's just conceptual art. It's just dematerial um, art. And I really take issue with this um, because most of what is being sold with NFTs, and we'll come back to this uh, towards the end of the episode, but most of what's being sold with NFTs, which a lot of people refer to as crypto art, um, which is not without its problems, but we'll come back to that, is not conceptual art at all. It's actually figurative, like, you know, basically naturalistic or highly stylized figurative art. It's not, you know, dematerialized in in any way, I would say. I mean, yes, it's digital, but it exists in hardware systems. It relies upon very material forms of resource extraction. It's very different than when, you know, a conceptual artist in the 20th century would, you know, just put forward an artwork that was, for example, a word score, right? A, a sort of instruction um, and that exists solely at the level of language. I 
uh, also think that if you look at the aesthetics, um, again, it's not really dematerialized. It's not about concepts or language. It's really about representation. It's about iconicity. It's about creating images of things. Now, it's pretty ironic because if you if you look at the history of conceptual art, of course, the the sort of godfather of conceptualism is Marcel Duchamp. And I think that crypto art is, in one sense, really indebted to conceptual art and to Duchamp in particular, um, not because of Duchamp's idea that, you know, art itself is an idea, but because Duchamp was very interested in the very nature of art and the question of how we determine the value of art. And so... Uh, a lot of crypto art isn't explicitly about these questions. It's not really a kind of interrogation of the ontology of art, nor is it uh, an explicit interrogation of how we create value. But certainly the the rise of the NFT art market, I think, itself raises those questions. So uh, just to re- refresh you guys for a second, you know, the one thing we talked about in the last episode is that the NFT is usually not used to actually transfer ownership of a digital asset. Uh, the NFT usually is something that simply points to its, you know, it, it is linked to that asset, but it only proves that you, in fact, bought the NFT. So um, some people... Um, have said that these are kinds of digital certificates of authenticity or um, deeds, but they're really not in a way because in most cases, and as I mentioned last time, this is sort of rapidly changing already as people code new kinds of contracts, but in most of the default contracts of these NFT art platforms, um, you are not actually, like it does not actually function as a as a deed or a title. You are not actually being granted ownership over the associated asset. All you are getting ownership of is the NFT itself that points to that asset. But the artist actually retains full ownership over their, uh, their not only their intellectual property, but the artwork itself. And in a sense, that's actually great. So uh, Wade Wallerstein, who is uh, the founder of Silicon Valley, um, which is a, a great sort of online platform for digital art um, and also a director at Transfer Gallery, which is um, you know one of the sort of key galleries that deals in born digital work. He pointed out that in a way this is great for artists because they get to make money off of their art without actually losing control over their art. They get to retain full ownership while also monetizing their art. And so when Wade said that, it occurred to me that essentially the NFT is an artist bond. It's a way for the artist to issue uh, something or to sell something that allows them to raise money and in support of their you know, career. And rather than simply donate to the artist, the collector gets a receipt uh, in the form of the NFT that is an appreciating asset. So just as a municipality might issue bonds in order to raise funds for itself, and that bond is a kind of appreciating asset... Um, for the investor. Same thing here. The NFT is just an artist bond. It's a way for an artist to convince people to give them money to support their career. And in return, these people don't just get, you know, uh, a good feeling. They actually get something out of it. They get an asset that could be an appreciating asset if you believe in the future of NFTs. So once I was thinking about, you know, once I began thinking about the NFT as an artist bond, again, it was like, well, Marcel Duchamp. I mean, Mar- you know, it's Marcel Duchamp is is oftentimes described as actually the most important artist of the 20th century, more so than Picasso. And I think that's because in many cases, 
something will come up and you'll realize that Duchamp had gotten there first, that like Duchamp already talked about this literally 100 years ago. Um, so, of course, I'm thinking of Duchamp's uh, Monte Carlo bond. Yeah, Duchamp is one of those artists that when I teach him in my courses, I do try to not, maybe not distance myself, but take a more disinterested approach to him than I inevitably ever can. Because as you say, it's just like time keeps moving forward. The art world evolves and you can still, there are cases like this where you can still find new directions that are so deeply rooted in the work of Duchamp. And um, this past year, I taught two classes in which I showed an interview with Duchamp at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, um, which holds, I don't know if it's the majority of his works that remain, but certainly it's the biggest collection of his works in, in the U.S. And it's just like, he just seemed like such a nice guy. And I'm like, I want some reason to dislike him. And it's just like, you know, of course he's not perfect, but it's like, he just seemed like a cool guy, you know? I think this is a good place to remind our listeners that terms like conceptualism and conceptual art have very specific meanings in very specific historical contexts. And there are numerous terms in art history for which that's the case. And it's it's the kind of thing where when we're teaching students, we, you know, encourage them to not use the term realist or realistic when talking about works of art, because realism with a capital R, social realism, there are these movements that have um, very specific sociopolitical as well as aesthetic meanings in different moments. And conceptualism is one of those terms. It's not just a work that has a concept or where the concept is important, but rather conceptualism, especially if we're talking about it with a capital C, you know, emerged in this post-war mo moment and has particular characteristics. Oh my God, we'll snaps all around, Sarah. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so we'll, you know, we're going to come back in a little bit later to an example of a work of conceptualism or what is now recognized as a, a work of conceptualism. But when we're talking about Duchamp and Duchamp's uh, Monte Carlo bonds, as Tina mentioned, we're not talking about conceptual art. This is this is coming several decades before conceptualism emerges, but conceptual artists in the 50s, 60s, 70s, so much of that work is indebted to uh, Duchamp, as are many of the concepts that surround NFTs, as, as Tina's brought up and as we'll get more into. So the Monte Carlo bonds, uh, as I said, were created by Duchamp in 1924. The term Monte Carlo refers to this famous gambling center in Monaco, which is this principality along the French Riviera. And the idea kind of developed around um, Duchamp's experiments with roulette. And Duchamp was was really sort of a Renaissance man and got, you know, became like a world famous chess player as well as a world famous artist. And um, he found a way of building winnings via roulette through this very, very long process. And he created these Monte Carlo bonds as a way of generating the funds that he needed in order to play the game. And um, I, and the plan was that he would make 30 of these bonds. Each of these bonds would sell for 500 francs. Each person who bought a bond, um, and particularly a bond that was stamped, would receive a share of his profits, a share of the earnings that he made um, through the roulette gambling, and that would be 20%. Um, 
of his winnings. So a lot of the information, I mean, the Monte Carlo bonds are a very famous work, but a, a lot of the material that I'm citing here comes from an article by the art historian David Jocelet, who also recently published uh, a short article in the journal October um, about NFTs. So reading that article, one of the terms that came up for uh, Duchamp's method of winning very slowly over this painstaking, you know, repeated playing of, of roulette, the term martingale came up, which is this stochastic process term, I guess. And, you know, my husband, Brian, is getting a PhD in math. And I I, uh, I, I took a screenshot of the, the part of the article that said martingale and, and texted it to him. And he was like, yeah, that's what I work on. What are you talking, like, where is this coming from? I was like, oh, I was in an article. I, I don't know. I still don't know what a martingale is. But anyway, so the Monte Carlo bonds themselves are interesting in that they both kind of function as artworks and as legal documents. And I won't go into the details. We'll post an image of one of these bonds uh, on our website. So I won't go into details about what you actually see on the bond, but there's a lot of kind of pseudo legal and financial text, but the most prominent and most bold part of the image is this uh, flat kind of diagrammatic image of a roulette table. And the top of that is a roulette wheel superimposed with a portrait of Duchamp um, by Man Ray, another artist and photographer. And in this portrait, Duchamp's head is covered in soap suds and his hair is teased up in a way that looks like these devil horns are kind of sticking up. The bonds bear the signatures of both Duchamp and his alter ego, Rose Selavi. And as Tina has mentioned, this is one of a number of, of works by Duchamp from around this time that really get at the heart of these questions about art, about finance, and about materiality. Although the Monte Carlo bonds have a lot of details and elements sort of created by Duchamp, there is still a strong connection to the idea of the ready-made, um, which we've talked about. I, I don't know. We've probably talked about the ready-made in almost every <laughs> episode we've ever recorded. So just as a reminder, the ready-made, this concept um, developed by Duchamp of a work that is basically just plucked out of the everyday world, um, altered very little or not at all, and uh, exhibited or established as a work of art by the artist. And, you know, the notion is that the artist saying it's a work of art makes it a work of art. Just really quickly, like the most famous example, of course, of a ready-made is Duchamp's um, famous work, Fountain, from 1917, which was a, a urinal that he exhibited, uh, turning it sort of upside down and then signing it R. Mutt. And there's like a much longer history here about that object that I don't want to get into, but I just wanted to call it out really quickly because Fountain, believe it or not, is uh, the kind of like de facto icon of crypto art. Like, it's amazing the number of crypto artists who all have had the exact same idea, which is to create a digital version of Fountain. Like, they all have done these, like, 3D renderings or these little animations of this porcelain urinal. Like, it's really become um, a kind of symbol of crypto art. I mean, we could c contrast that with something like 
Sherry Levine's after Marcel Duchamp, you know, where she took the notion of the, of the fountain, she took Duchamp's fountain and had it, you know, recast in gold. So kind of flipping Duchamp, I mean, engaging with Duchamp in a, a kind of interesting critical way that kind of gets Duchamp in a way that from what you're saying, these artists don't. Yeah, just a digital recreation of the urinal doesn't really seem to, right? But like recasting it in gold, it's like it it's sort of like um, it throws the ball back in Duchamp's court. So with the Monte Carlo bonds, there is still this element of the ready-made, but here the ready-made is this kind of legal or financial imagery and uh, and language. And the signature, Marcel Duchamp's own signature and the value associated with his signature was something that was recognized right away. Um, so there was this journal, The Little Review, who responding to Monte Car- the Monte Carlo bonds in 1924-25, so right when he made them, uh, stated, quote, Marcel's signature alone is worth much more than the 500 francs asked for the share, end quote. So, you know, there's already this recognition that it's not just this kind of legal or financial language it's it's the signature of the artist alone and that's something that Duchamp was very aware of going back to his earliest ready-mades I mean you think about something like the LHOOQ the the Mona Lisa reproduction that he added the beard and the mustache to and signed his name to and it's you know as much his signature that uh, adds value uh, to that work as anything else. And, and if I can just like interject here real quick, like, I mean, in a way, again, it's like Duchamp is the perfect president for crypto art because the the NFT is precisely about the artist's signature, right? Like it's the one thing the NFT can do. Like it's not it's not a way of storing art on the blockchain. It's not necessarily a way of transferring ownership. But the whole idea of the NFT is that you know, it is a way of the artist proving that they made this work at this time. Like when you mint a work on the blockchain, it's to enter a record onto the blockchain, which is supposedly, you know, immutable. And so, um, yeah, it's basically a, a way of creating a digital signature. Um, so it, it it does dovetail, but just not in the way that they think it does. Right. Um in many, yeah, and, there, and there are exceptions. There are huge exceptions to this, and I'll come to them in a minute. So. Right. Yeah, and there's another um, Duchamp work from, from slightly earlier that I just want to tie into this uh, work from 1919 um, called Zonk Check. And this was a, a fake check that he made out to his dentist. Uh, and it was made, he, he meticulously constructed this fake check to make it resemble a real check. The financial institution that's listed on the Zonk check uh, is a fake bank in New York City. It was called the Teeth's Loan and Trust Company Consolidated. And the $115 that's on this fake check uh, that's listed on it is actually way more than uh, a dental visit would have actually cost Duchamp, which is hilarious to think about. I hate going to the dentist. Um, Duchamp eventually actually bought uh, that check back from Zonk. That title Zonk check refers to um, the dentist, Zonk, and um, Duchamp bought it back from him for more than $115. So there's this kind of interesting complex feedback loop in that works like Zonk check and Monte Carlo bond look like they represent um, legal documents and represent money, Although checks and bonds and things like that themselves 
are representations of money. You know, it's not like gold. It's not, you know, a material kind of manifestation of 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 money. And that's something that Duchamp is certainly calling attention to with works like Zongcheck and, and Monte Carlo bonds. But he's also at the same time aware of his signature being a signifier of value, even though this isn't, you know, it isn't a real check, like the Zongcheck isn't a real check. Um, he's still aware that his signature gives it a certain layer of value. And that is underscored by the fact that he later bought this work back. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think this point, Sarah, is so important. As you said before, like the ready-made here, it's not an object. It's a system. It's a legal and financial system. Like, So Duchamp, in a way, is already imagining, I mean, institutional cr- critique isn't quite the white term. That's something that comes about in the 1980s and refers to critiquing the institutions of art or the institutions in which art is displayed. But this is the kind of, I mean, it, it it's... I mean, it's almost like Foucauldian or something referring to like Michel Foucault, who, you know, philosopher from the 60s and onwards, who drew our attention to the um, the importance of institutions in creating power and reproducing power, whether it's the school or the church or the government. So in that kind of way, like it's this critique of institutions, right? It's a critique of monetary policy in a way. It's like a critique of uh, the banking system. I mean, maybe a critique is too strong of a word, but it plays upon, it sees those institutions for what they are. It doesn't just take them at face value. It offers a kind of parody of them and specifically is interested in how they intersect with the art market, like thinking about how value is created and sustained in both systems. And of course, it's um, Rosalind Krauss, who um, in her book, The Picasso Papers, writing about Picasso and the birth of modernism, points out that, you know, she, she's citing somebody else, but um, points out this idea that, you know, the the birth of modernism, um, it, it's not totally accidental, perhaps, that it is coincident with this moment in which there is a crisis about the value of money, that the loss of the gold standard in the 19-teens, which sort of hit countries at different times, triggered a crisis in this question of representation. Like Sarah's talking about, you know, it's like a bond is a piece of paper, um, even, uh, you know, a check, it's a piece of paper, right? And so they're they're only as good as our faith in the institutions upon which those things are drawn or from which they are issued. And that, you know, modern artists like Picasso represent a similar, maybe not represent is the right word, but they, you know, that, that they are tied up in a similar kind of crisis of representation, realizing that just because this paint on canvas looks like something doesn't necessarily mean it has that, you know, same value as the object itself, realizing that there is a kind of arbitrariness um, that, you know, we all just agree that this painting looks like a horse, but, you know, it's actually really not like a horse in a lot of really profound and important ways, starting with the fact that it's a two-dimensional flat surface. Yeah, so this crisis of representation that Duchamp is playing with in this moment of financial crisis, again, it's like this is another really important parallel, I think, with the NFTs. The NFTs are emerging from this kind of moment of financial crisis, too, after the crisis of 2008. Like, that's basically when blockchain technologies emerged and really caught on because people were looking for an alternative system for keeping track of financial assets that didn't depend upon large banks, which suddenly people were not trusting, um, thanks to 2008 and all of the meltdowns that happened then. So um, again, there's a, there's amazing historical resonance and echoes that I think it's, um, 
you know, not everyone has fully like, you know, we're still sort of processing. It's still so early, but we're still sort of in the journalistic phase of trying to figure out exactly what's going on with NFTs and who the players are and where they've come from and tracking the market changes. And we're just starting to do the work of sort of digging down and really understanding how this whole phenomenon relates to um, sort of the the major movements and ideas of, of 20th century and 21st century art. As we've already sort of indicated, the reverberations of Duchamp's work are, are immense, but uh, we want to highlight a couple of works here before connecting back to NFTs. And there are two works by um, the artist Robert Morris, who has had associations with uh, movements like minimalism, post-minimalism, and in this case, conceptualism. And I'm realizing now we offhandedly mentioned what conceptualism is. I was like, oh, it's grounded in a very particular historical moment, but we didn't actually say, you know, what conceptualism engages. And as Tina's already said, it's uh, there's a lot of dematerialization and there's a lot of emphasis on language. The first work by Robert Morris we want to highlight is one from 1963 called Litanies. And this work consists of a set of keys on a hanging ring, like a key ring. And on each key is inscribed a word from uh, a work by Duchamp. Then the work by Duchamp is uh, called The Green Box. And this is a work that accompanied and helped to explain another of Duchamp's own works, the shorthand name of which is The Large Glass. I'm like already um, confused by all of these citations, but we'll I have know. some images on our website. And so if yeah. you guys are able to look at our website, we'll have photos of litanies, photos of the green box, photos of yeah. the large glass. So this will hopefully get less confusing. Yeah. So just to reiterate, litanies itself, set of keys on each key is a word from a work by Duchamp called the green box. Um, so litanies, this work by Morris, was purchased by the architect Philip Johnson, and when he didn't pay Morris in a kind of timely fashion, Morris created another work, this work called Document, which included a notarized statement. The undersigned, Robert Morris, being the maker of the metal construction entitled Litanies, described in the annexed Exhibit A, hereby withdraws from said construction all aesthetic quality and content and declares that from the date hereof said construction has no such quality or content. So Exhibit A that he refers to in the statement is an image produced in lead of litanies and um, the image is in relief. Um, so you see that key ring with the keys in frontal and profile views. And so it has this kind of legal court like, you know, appearance and, and text to it. So, you know, what Morris is basically doing is in a kind of tongue in cheek way saying because Johnson didn't pay him quickly enough, he's removing all the aesthetic content and he's re removing all meaning of the work, which of course is absurd. So Morris's work, both litanies and then um, document, generates these complex questions about the nature of art in ways that we've been talking about already. How is meaning tied to ownership? Does the owner have control over meaning once they purchase the work? And this is very much like Duchamp had done 
decades earlier. So this is where we see some of those reverberations of the concept of the artist and, and meaning and how these things are all tied up together. So who owns art? Who gets to decide what art means? Um, when does an artist's ownership of a work and its meaning and its value end? And when is it sort of released to um, another party or set of parties? There are a lot of artists who are raising exactly these questions, either making works on uh, or about the blockchain and or NFTs. Before I go on, I just want to make a distinction because I think a lot of people um, are mistaking the NFT itself as the medium. I've seen a lot of people, including very high profile critics, say that the NFT is a medium or a tool for making art. And I just want to be really clear that the NFT is, in fact, not in like 99.9% of the cases, uh, a medium or tool for making art. It is a financial tool that is used to sell digital works of art that in most cases are, in fact, profoundly conservative in terms of their medium, like they're basically JPEG files or GIF files. You know, there's nothing really radical about how those works of art are made. I mean, they're made using software programs that, you know, now have been used to make art for a very long time, mostly in commercial applications, but also in fine art applications. So there's nothing really radical about the digital art that is referred to as crypto art in terms of its medium. It's basically just, you know, uh, software based imagery. What is radical is the use of the NFT to financialize those files. But the NFT is not the medium. The medium is like the JPEG. The medium is the computer. The medium is Photoshop. But the, the NFT is not a medium. And, and when I say medium, I mean the substrate of the work, like the either the material substrate. So like in a, in a very literal sense, the medium is like a USB file. Um, data. Data, computer application, like a silicon chip like or the medium can be um, and this was you know Rosalind Krauss's great contribution to the discourse of the medium in in um, modern contemporary art that the medium can just be a kind of apparatus that the artist sort of reacts against or to and in this case you know the NFT could be a medium if artists were making work sort of not only with NFTs or not even necessarily with NFTs, but sort of about NFTs. So her famous, you know, one of her famous examples is that for Ed Ruscha, if you're familiar with his works, he made a lot of works that were um, about car culture, like um, every building on the Sunset Strip or paintings of gas stations. And so she said, well, for Ed Ruscha, the medium is the automobile. Right. So that's what I mean by a kind of apparatus, like a, a, a sort of a theme, but like not treated just on the level of content. But anyway, I can't delve into that more. We'll never get through this NFT part two episode. So for most artists, they're not using the NFT as a medium. They're not using the blockchain as a medium. They're using that as a tool for registering transactions for selling their digital artworks, which are like not that revolutionary in terms of their medium. Now, um, I, I do want to highlight, though, that there are artists who are using blockchain and NFTs um, as a medium. So I'm just going to talk about a couple of those really quickly, because these are artists who are, in fact, raising the same kinds of conceptual questions about the nature of art by using the blockchain, by using NFTs. The first one I'm going to talk about is Rhea Myers, who is sort of recognized as like one of the OG blockchain artists. Um, and she has made a number of works that are 
sort of deliberately in dialogue with conceptual art. So um, she has one work called Art Is from 2014, in which people could use um, the Ethereum network, so one of these blockchain networks, to define the concept of art. Basically, you would pay a certain price equal to how certain you were about the correctness of your definition. And basically, it's sort of like crowdsourcing the definition of art, but also um, allowing the person who can spend the most money to have the kind of final say. And so I think this is a really clever artwork that points to the fact that basically art is something that does have to be defined, that does not just a priori exist, and that in fact, the people who define it are the people who have the most capital, whether it's cultural capital, like people who work at museums, or literal capital, like collectors. They are the ones, whether it's um, people with cultural capital or financial capital, they are the ones who get to define what art is. And so in a way, Rhea is playing on the rhetoric of the blockchain, which is all about democracy and egalitarianism, supposedly, to sort of, you know, make this process more egalitarian, open to everybody, just sort of an open bidding war, right? And so one of my sort of critiques, and I'm not the only one, but one of my critiques is that while a lot of what is on the blockchain masquerades as being egalitarian or open to everybody, the reality is, is that it in many cases is actually even more elitist in terms of like just who has the technological know-how to set up a blockchain wallet, for example. Just to clarify, you're saying your critique of NFT culture, not of Rhea Meyer's work. Yeah, yeah. My, my critique of NFT cultures. And I think Rhea Meyer's work in some way like raises these issues too, right? Is like, to what extent is this process any more fair in a way? Like it's proposing an alternative model that on the one hand, I think, sends up the traditional art world, pointing out that sort of the definition of art is up open to the highest bidder in a way. But I wonder if it's also kind of implicitly critiquing the sort of crypto. I mean, Rio is very much embedded in the crypto world, but... Um, you know, I think that, you know, you could sort of read this work as also implicitly asking whether, for example, letting the definition of art be open to this kind of process is even a good idea. It, at least it asks that question, right, implicitly. Uh, Rhea has another project called, so that last project was called Art Is. This project is called Is Art. Um, and it's from 2016 to 17. And I'm just going to read um, what I believe Rhea herself wrote about this. So, this text about the work says, is art takes the conceptual art ideas of dematerialization, parentheses, art that is not presented in a fixed physical form, end parentheses, and nomination, parentheses, something that is art because someone or something says it is, end parentheses, and combines them with the net art idea of the interactive artwork that exists in or interferes with network protocols. In it, an Ethereum smart contract contains the assertion that it either is or is not art. A web page connected to the Ethereum network displays the state of this assertion to anyone who can access the contract and allows them to switch it between states. When they do so, this will become a fact secured in Ethereum's blockchain with the strength of millions of dollars of computing power a day. Is this sufficient to determine whether the contract is or is not art? Where and how is the claim really being made and determined? How does this relate to historical examples of such artworks? And how does it relate to other claims of fact stored in other smart contracts? End quote. So there's a lot going on here, and I'm going to encourage people, like, we'll include links for people to go and read more about Rio's work. But, you know, as you can see here, just from even the narrative that's provided about it, um, you know, that this work, which basically allows people, right, to toggle 
whether an Ethereum contract registered on the blockchain is art or is not art raises questions about, you know, well, how would we know whether the contract is or is not art? How is that claim being determined? And, you know, this question of how does it relate to historical examples of such artworks? Well, I think, you know, one answer, um, given just what Sarah and I have talked about today, is that it relates to works like Monte Carlo Bond, where, you know, Sarah said pretty unequivocally that Monte Carlo Bond is both a legal document and an artwork. Or if you think about Robert Morris's litanies, where it's like, again, unequivocal, you know, this is a legal document and also an artwork. But that's a lot to swallow. You know, like you really have to believe the very premise of conceptual art, which is that art can be no more than an idea in order to um, believe that a legal document can also be a work of art. So um, obviously there is a historical or an art historical lineage here for is art, right? That these are some of the same questions posed like Monte Carlo Bond sort of implicitly asks like, this is a legal document, but can it also be a work of art? And Duchamp treated it as such. The art market treated it as such. Art historians have treated it as such, but it does beg the question, right, like of sort of who gets to answer that question and what are the arguments for and against. Another artist I want to talk about uh, really briefly is Primavera de Filippi, who started a project called Plantoid in 2015. And um, this project is pretty complex. I'm going to gloss over it. But basically, the plantoids are self-replicating artworks <laughs> is a good way to summarize them. So there are blockchain wallets um, and smart contracts on the Ethereum network. And basically, people can send money to, let's just call it like a plantoid, right? So this, this wallet attached to a smart contract, people can send money to it. And once the plantoid has enough money in its cryptocurrency wallet, the smart contract automatically triggers a process where it's, it has a kind of open call asking for humans to help the plantoid reproduce itself by physically creating the next version of itself. So it's sort of this like virtual slash tangible hybrid. So the plantoid is both this like smart contract wallet, you know, being that exists on the blockchain and also physical sculpture. So um, all of the people who contributed to the plantoid's crypto wallet get to vote on the different proposals that artists submit. And then the artist who submitted the winning proposal will then be given the funds from the plantoid's wallet in order to pay for the fabrication of their proposal. So in a way, I mean, it's interesting because the artist talks about this work as being self-replicating and autonomous, which of course like isn't fully the case because when you're asking a bunch of humans who have each contributed money to the plantoid to come together for the de decision-making process, you know, there are other sentiences involved here. There are, you know, human intelligences involved. But it is kind of the case that it is an automatic thing that, you know, the smart contract, these are contracts that are on the blockchain. We call them smart contracts that, you know, automatically execute when a certain number of conditions are met. So it is sort of an artwork that will just continue to exist as long as people continue to meet its conditions and as long as the blockchain continues to exist. So, um, you know, I think this work is on the one hand trying to give form to organizations that exist on the blockchain known as DAOs. I'm not going to get into it, but there's like supposedly, you know, they're like the cutting edge. They're going to replace corporations. Um, they're already recognized legally in 
a U.S. state. I think North Dakota, maybe more are coming. So there's a lot of excitement in the crypto community about the potential of DAOs. And again, I, I don't want to get into that, but I think on the one hand, it's sort of about giving form to these DAOs to show people what a DAO would look like, like, you know, the way that it can sort of be a situation that some people think is more transparent and more equitable than, for example, like a board of trustees governing a corporation. But on the other hand, as an art project, it's also really interesting about the nature of art. Even now, we think that behind a work of art must stand an artist, a sort of singular intelligence. And historically, we've always understood that there can be groups of artists who come together to collaborate, but we have always devalued those projects in relation to projects that are done by individuals, that we have this concept of genius that is a whole nother podcast topic about where that comes from, but basically it's Michelangelo and the Renaissance this individual, you know, um, who has a, a unique artistic vision that has to be executed by them and them alone. And that if, you know, you rely on a workshop and outsource your labor, that somehow that's a denigration of the project somehow. So thinking about what art could be when it's not only sort of crowdsourced in this way, but also, you know, the initial concept is somebody's idea, like it's Primavera de Filippi, she's the artist who stands behind it. But as soon as you open the work to committee and have a bunch of humans voting on a proposal, I guess then the artist becomes the person who submitted that proposal to realize that sculpture. But basically, the project itself becomes this iterative thing. And you can refer to Plantoids as both Primavera de Filippi's conceptual project, where she set up these smart contracts and these conditions. And then you can also think of the individual, like artists, designers, hackers, welders, whoever, who submitted the bids, who made the individual plantoids as being the artist. So this is one of the things about digital art that's like actually one of the hallmarks of digital art is that very rarely does it make sense to talk about the unique or the sort of specific or stable work of art that in many cases with digital art, the work is ephemeral, it's iterative, it's um, collaborative, it's unstable, it's dynamic. So, um, you know, the plantoid here, it sort of is one and many things at the same time. And it just sort of, um, I think, points out that, you know, or it asks a sort of interesting question about, you know, can we imagine a work of art without an artist standing behind it? And of course, the, you know, the, the, one of the big failures supposedly with conceptualism is that it really tried to do this. It really tried to sort of de-skill and and to challenge the authority, like the the figure of authority that is the artist, but that the market and also art history always has a way of reasserting, you know, the so-called author function, to borrow from literary theory, like that the market always wants to point to, to name an artist who stands behind a, an artwork and to celebrate and put them on a pedestal, even when they've tried to create a project that takes them off of that pedestal. And I mean, and this, you know, actually raises like, a much longer history of this question of, you know, is the work of art something that is generated by the artist's hand or the artist's mind, which in fact goes back to the Renaissance, that formerly before the Renaissance, artwork was basically craft work. It was something you did with your hands. And one of the agendas of people like Giorgio Vasari, the sort of godfather of art history, the first art historian who wrote the great lives of the artists, the first biographies of the Renaissance masters, 
that, you know, Vasari's agenda was to elevate art from something that was done with the hand to something that was done with the mind, right? That now that art is involving perspective, which is to say math, geometry, these kinds of things, it is something on the level of, you know, rhetoric or grammar. It's something that is intellectual and not just manual. And so that is like, again, it's like we're talking about now, you know, discussion that's been going on for like, you know, um, half a millennia. Okay, sorry. I got ranting about the Renaissance. And then this always happens when modernists start talking about the Renaissance. They get all excited um, to be talking about actual art history. So these are just two examples of artists who are using the blockchain to make works that I think are very much conceptual and do raise these kinds of issues that we find raised by classical conceptual, quote-unquote conceptual artworks with a capital C by people like Robert Morris and then even Duchamp sort of before him as the godfather of conceptualism. It's only recently the case that artists like Rhea Myers have started to be included in the major auctions from places like Sotheby's and Christie's, which is great. Like, I'm glad to finally see some recognition um, happening. And again, it's also early. I mean, this thing has only been going on for like four months, so it feels like a lifetime. But um, at least for me, but I hope that in the future that more attention will be paid to these sort of, for lack of a better word, critical perspectives or conceptual projects um, in this space. I'll just end by mentioning some uh, exhibitions in case people want to go and learn more about this kind of work. So uh, we'll link to these from our website as well. But Sam Hart is an artist who also has been you know, working with and thinking about these technologies for a minute. Um, and back in 2017, he curated, you know, one of the first sort of blockchain art shows. It was called Zero X, and it was at the Ethereal Summit. So it was sort of existing within the sort of institutional context. It was presented in tandem with a kind of, you know, very pro-crypto space. Um, but he was invited to come in and, and curate this exhibition and We'll have a link to that so you can see um, more of the works. Rhea Myers was one of the artists included in that show. In 2018, Simon Denny curated a show about blockchain art for the Schinkel Pavilion in Germany called Proof of Work. Um, and he, you know, sort of emulated blockchain technology and social structures by actually collaborating with a whole bunch of people on the show. So he curated it in dialogue with um, a whole bunch of folks, including Sam Hart and also Harm van den Dorpel, who's the head of Left Gallery, which is one of the other major galleries for Born Digital Works. Their show included um, Rhea Myers as well. Now that NFTs have become uh, sort of a really hot thing, we are seeing more galleries um, and museums beginning to offer shows about so-called crypto art. But these shows tend to foreground what we think of as crypto art, which is to say these kinds of 3D renderings that are attached to NFTs that have really become the center of their own market um, over the past year and especially the past six months. I'm, I'm not really going to talk too much about those, but I will say that some very thoughtful and interesting interventions into that conversation include an exhibition called Pieces of Me that was offered by Transfer Gallery and also Left Gallery, which went up this spring and which includes 50, I'm sorry, 50 uh, leading digital artists, roughly, who, who made works that are all, or who offered works that are all drawn from their practices and could be considered tokens of their practices. And so the show, just on the curatorial level, raised questions about what it means to tokenize a work of art, what it means for an artist to participate in this new NFT market, and what are they selling of themselves? You know, what are they gaining? 
Um, so there was that exhibition, and we'll link to that. Um, and another, not so much a singular exhibition, but a platform I want to mention is called Feral File. And this is the brainchild of Casey Reyes, who's one of the leading um, digital artists and, in fact, a sort of meta-digital artist because he is um, one of the brains behind a software program called Processing that a lot of digital artists use to create digital art. And Feral File is um, this platform that offers curated exhibitions that are guest curated, you know, one at a time, much like a traditional gallery. Um, and these exhibitions are of digital artists selling, you know, natively digital works of art. In both Pieces of Me and Feral Files exhibitions, you don't have to actually buy an NFT. You could just buy the digital art using like regular currency. It's just that with Pieces of Me, you are given the option of minting your purchase on the blockchain. And with Feral File, all of the purchases are registered onto the blockchain. So, for example, if you buy a work from Feral File, you can use your credit card and you are given the digital files as well as a whole sort of package, you know, that would come with that, um, with any acquisition of digital art, um, including, you know, a certificate of authenticity and instructions for installation and, and things like that. But the transaction itself on the back end is registered on a blockchain so that there is a sort of provenance on the blockchain of, of, of you know, your transactions. So this is just to say that, you know, there like Sarah was mentioning to me that, you know, she was having her students talk about NFTs. And one question they had, because so many of them are artists, is, well, is there any potential use case? Like, is there any good to come out of this? And I would say that, you know, yes, there are some ways now that we can think about you know, provenance, that's usually one of the things that's touted um, as an advantage of the blockchain is that you're able to create sort of secure transaction histories, although I would just point out that those can get hacked too, so nothing is really forever, and that the NFT is neither necessary nor sufficient to prove chain of ownership because the smart contracts aren't necessarily legally enforceable or we don't know if they are yet and they don't necessarily assign ownership unless they've been coded that way. But anyway, um, I digress. But that, you know, it is, there are some use cases, including establishing provenance um, and transaction history, and that another one more broadly is just that I hope that it raises more awareness about emerging technologies, and it raises more um, interest in artists like the ones I've just been talking about, who are very interested in these technologies, and again, not just as technological systems, but also as social um, and cultural ones and, and financial ones. And so as somebody who's very much interested in digital art and who often curates digital art and artists I, and, and writes about them as a critic, you know, I just really hope that we now will all understand that digital art, you know, is this really interesting and can be a very conceptually rich area of uh, contemporary art practice and that there will be more interest uh, moving forward and not less. Although I wouldn't be surprised if there was this sort of, you know, the pendulum swings and all everyone wants to talk about is painting, especially once, you know, everyone gets back into museums and we start to, you know, imagine a world beyond COVID. As Tina mentioned, we'll link to all of these various sites and artists on our website, which is arthistoryhappyhour.com. There you'll find our episode blog, which includes those links and images. And you'll also find a link to our Patreon account. Thank you to those of you who have already become patrons of the show. And as a reminder, by becoming a Patreon subscriber, you get access to our scene series in which we discuss art in movies and TV. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at arthistoryhour at gmail.com. 
You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash arthistoryhappyhour and on both Twitter and Instagram as at arthistoryhour. Thank you.